0: Listen, baby, it won't get weird. (laughs) That sounds weird. (laughs) (laughs) Too
1: late.
2: (laughs) Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Harvest. I use Harvest to track time, track subcontractors' time, and invoice clients. Their time tracking is really simple and easy to use. Invoicing includes a pay-now function by credit card and PayPal, and you can sign up at getharvest.com. Use the code RF to get 50% off your first month. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 28 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live
3: from second story of an office space in Orem, Utah.
2: Oh, We also have Jameson Dance.
1: Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. I'm super excited because today ITV just announced that we're doing the the Nintendo TV thing, and I haven't been able to talk about it for like six months, so it's a good day.
2: Cool. We also have Joe Eames.
0: Coming at you semi-live from American Fork, Utah.
2: And I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Uh Tim's not with us with whip yeah. Tim's not with us this week because uh, he is in China. I thought I'd point that out because I think it's cool. Anyway, this week we're gonna be talking about Greenfield versus Brownfield projects. Um, it was kind of funny when we were getting ready to do this. Um, some of the panelists were like, What green, green brown?
1: Yeah, I have to pull a Josh Shusser and ask for a definition.
2: So as far as I understand it, there are some nuances to this, depending on who you talk to, but mostly um, Greenfield is a brand new project um, with few or no decisions made um, and no code um, written for it yet. And uh, Brownfield projects are effectively uh, older applications, uh, usually associated with legacy code. Um, you know so it's an application that already has code written toward it and typically is out there in the world doing whatever it is it's supposed to do
1: now I want to put this question delicately are there any fecal connotations to the color brown in brownfield
2: only if it's PHP
1: (laughs) then it's poop field development
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay we're not going to go down that tangent
3: (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, honestly, when Mormons make jokes about crap, it never sounds good anyway. Yeah.
2: So, uh, anyway, um, how many of you guys have actually worked on a real Greenfield project? Like, been there from day one that you haven't just built yourself?
1: I. So, I guess it depends on your definition. Okay. Maybe. Um,. So we, we have lots of services at ITV, so I've been part of, of just sp- spinning up completely new services that didn't exist. But there was still, I mean, we had other sort of similar things already. So some of the decisions were already made for us. So we, we kind of had a style established, but it was still a, like a separate project. Do, do you forget us so soon, Jason?
3: <laughs> you, you don't remember ever working here or? I do. Video.
1: I don't remember Greenfield stuff. I remember new features, but not complete. I mean, we were building off existing code. Or do I misremember? Well, what about the uh, the map? Tony. Yeah, that, that was a feature on top of an existing code base. It wasn't like a whole new project. It was just a whole new feature. If you can't tell folks, that was a
2: bad breakup. Up.
1: <laughs> no, no, it was it, a good it, breakup. We still hug every time we see each other.
2: Yeah, we do. I love Jameson. So, Joe, I'm a little curious um, if you would count a new web service inside of an existing ecosystem, a Greenfield project.
0: Well, I think that that really raises a, the, one of the more interesting questions about Greenfield versus Brownfield development, which is, you know, your description, things where there's been no decision and is green and things where the code base is older is brown well i think that leaves out that a big huge chunk which is probably what most people work on which is you know projects that are being built but decisions have been made and now you're in the middle of that and dealing with the ramifications of the decisions that were made and all the code that's been written and then still trying to build upon it. so um, services definitely, you know, services inside of a bigger project like what Jameson was talking about, where you've actually already made some decisions, I think falls inside that category. So, is, is that green or is that brown?
2: That's a good question. for For me, I don't know. It's it's hard because yeah, you come into a greenfield project, but you come in at a later stage. Is it
1: still greenfield? I I don't know. Right. So if you mix green and brown, you get like camouflage. Brown basically. Well, camouflage, <laughs> yeah, okay. So okay, maybe, that's maybe it. We're pointing it. And camouflage camouflage
0: field development.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Camo and <then> field. <laughs> you have a problem where no one can see your projects. Right.
0: So, you know, where some devi- decisions have been made, but some haven't, right? That's an interesting place to be where you can make decisions still, where you're not just refactoring or bug fixing tra- legacy code, but you're building. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting place to be. And I think that's where most people live their life. The majority of their coding lives is in that, that realm.
2: Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. it It's, I think some of it just depends on the developer as well. I mean, if you're the person kind of making the decisions as you go along, um, then it may feel more like a greenfield project where if you are being exposed to code that somebody else is writing and making the decisions on, then it, it's probably more of a brownfield project for you.
1: That's actually a really good point. To some people, every project they work on is a greenfield project because <laughs> every decision that's been made can be thrown out and, and made their way. Yes and,
2: and, yes and no. I, I, I think to a certain degree you're probably right but uh, to another degree I have to say that uh, it seems to me that you know, at a certain point you're dealing with the the older app, the ecosystem that you've built. And so even when you're adding new features and you're making new decisions you're still dealing with the legacy code that's already there.
3: Yeah. I- so here I was the third person to come on. Um, so the only code that had been written, like application code, was written by electrical engineers, it was not the best code. Um, of course, not to say that my code is the best code, but it was better.
2: Having been an electrical engineering major, ouch.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, anyway, so I have had the luxury of kind of being able to, to, to take command and everybody that came on, came on after me. So the whole you know, software team has kind of got a little bit of my footprint in it, and uh, it's been a it, it. was fun to be able to throw away the crappy code and and redo it,
2: um, but it took a long time. Right. So, so how do you deal with the legacy code? How how do you how do you manage that stuff? Like, what's what's your approach, AJ? You come in, you find a code base that isn't beautiful, and you know you you want to make it maintainable and. You know, solve some of the problems that are there. What do you do?
3: Um, well, I think there's two kind of approaches. Um, one is get the existing code to be more like the API that you want it to be externally, whatever, you know, little pieces it's going to have to interact with. And the other is the opposite way around build some new code the way that you want it to be, but then put like a shim layer in there that interfaces in the backward way.
2: Okay. So basically you maintain the API and you just make the, you you basically add a translation layer to the more usable code.
3: Yeah. You know, like, so as you refactor, just keep those stubs for the backward stuff in there until you're done with the refactor. And then, you know, when everything's working, you pull it out.
2: Yep. I, I I think Joe and I will agree that there's something else that you should do with your legacy code as you refactor it.
1: Documented?
2: It's a type of documentation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a guessing game. Okay, I know this one. Uh, <laughs> Hungarian notation for your variables. <laughs>
0: Getting warmer.
2: Uh, yeah, you should put tests around it. so, you, so at, at least characterization tests so you know what it does. And then from right. there you can, you can modify it without worrying about whether or not you've made critical changes to the API or critical changes to the, the results that you get out of it.
0: So there's this excellent book written by Michael Feathers called working effectively with legacy code, where he talks through the process of adding, uh, basically being able to, um, change legacy code. You know, I don't know how many of you guys have had this experience. I'm sure Chuck has of being on a project where you've got this large portion of the code, if not all the code that you're just afraid to touch because you're, you have no idea what might break in the entire system if you touch one piece of code because of how, uh, coupled, uh, the code might be. And so in the, you know, those extreme, this, this book has techniques that work all the way from those really extreme circumstances all the way down to just, you know, Hey, we wrote this six months ago, but, um, we want to make some changes and we just don't have it fresh in our minds anymore. And so it's a process of adding tests around your code, and he has all kinds of methods to deal with, you know, even the worst, least testable type of code in the least testable types of languages in that book. It's an excellent, excellent book if you're working with very brownfield type development and code that you're afraid to touch
2: yeah I have, I have to point out you, you said that I've probably had projects like that I, I just want to correct you I've built projects like that <laughs> where you you know you have that section of code and every time you try and add something to it something else breaks Yeah, and it's just like oh, what, how do I get out of this, this
1: mess so yeah. I've read part of that book not the whole thing I can only make it halfway through a book and then I have to start a new one it's a bad habit me but too. he has an interesting definition where he says that legacy code is just code that isn't under test right, um, I, I so agree with that that's kind of an extreme position I think, but we all know extreme is better it's like the different- <laughs> that's true, <laughs> yeah Mountain Dew has taught me that extreme is better so yeah. what I really meant to say is that's a better position um, <laughs> But <laughs> it's but yeah, funny that
2: you say that it's an extreme position because it sounds like you're saying that it might be a little bit too far down the, the spectrum
1: I am a testing uh, skeptic I'm also I have lots of guilt about it because I don't do it as much as I should but so so maybe I'm skeptical about it to make myself not feel as guilty
2: yeah but I because I- because I, I tend to see it the other way and I'm not sure it goes far enough because I've seen code under test that I would Call legacy code, and and it's not just because the tests weren't up to snuff. The code is just ugly; it's hard to work with,
0: right? So we had an interesting experience here at Domo. I brought like five of the front end engineers with me off to the Utah Software Craftsmanship User Group, and for a lot of them, it was their first exposure to a group of people that were you know heavily heavy believers in pair programming and test driven development, and you know. A, all the typical agile practices and refactoring to patterns and things like that. And Joe, I just want to let you know that you can come
3: here when you've
0: had your time there.
3: Just sign note. Okay.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, so it was, it was a very interesting experience because there's these five guys that showed up and then their thoughts afterwards about, you know, test driven development and code craftsmanship. And, you know, for people that haven't drunk the Kool-Aid you know, really done some test, good test driven development for a long time, paired for a while. It's, it, it's funny because you just don't see the benefits, the, you know, the first hour and those tutorials, it, it gives you benefits in c- scenarios that just can't be covered by a tutorial that has code so simple that people can understand it in a single article. But when you get into something big and heavy and all of a sudden your tests are just saving your life and the, the other guy sitting next to you that's catching the code that you're writing is you know keeping you from making mistake after mistake that's you know that pays off six months from now and eight months from now not tomorrow that pays off you know down the road that's when you know you get you get those benefits and you get the people that really truly understand and believe how beneficial those things are but and that's one of the hard things to do is to teach somebody if, if they don't spend six months doing it they I don't think they have an easy time seeing the benefits you can talk about it all day long, but it's hard to see. So I agree with my heartily with Michael Feather's definition that legacy code is code without tests, code that's not under test.
1: So I had a thought while you were talking, and that's how conservative... So if you're doing a Greenfield project where someone has an idea of what they want made, but it's not really decided how it gets made, how conservative
0: or